I was looking at uh, some videos online this last week, and I, I came across this video of Muhammad Ali uh, back in the day, right before he was about to go into a fight. And he was in rare form that day. And he was saying, I'm the greatest, and there's no way this guy's going to be able to, to, to last in the ring with me. And he, he was just confident in his abilities. And no doubt, at that time, he was the greatest boxer that America knew. But one of the things I love about this guy is the way his, oh, actually I say this in a nice, the way his ego kind of spilled over in other parts of his life. And uh, there's a, this example that you may remember uh, he was uh, on a plane one time, and as they were getting ready to take off, the stewardess came up to him and told him to put on his seatbelt. And he told her that Superman doesn't need a seatbelt. And she quickly reminded him that Superman doesn't need a plane either. And I thought that that was really brilliant. I wish I was that quick on my feet. But that's a great example of how uh, our confidence or pride in one area of life could spill over in other parts of our life and cause us to think of ourselves more highly than we ought. But this also gives us a reason to pause and ask the question, how would you define greatness? As you think about someone who is great, what characteristics come to your mind? We had a friend that was down from Canada that we knew a few weeks ago, and she's interested in politics, both Canadian and American. And so we did what you guys do when someone comes here, and they're like, hey, what's there to do in this town? And we're like, basically nothing. There's the campus, and there's a big library over here. Let's take you to the George Bush Library. So we did that. So we walked through there, and I remember, I forgot about this, uh, this display that is really the last thing that you see on the way out. This is a quote from President Bush himself, who said, any definition of a successful life must include serving others. That's a great quote, isn't it? I don't know if he was conscious about it or not, but he was in a very real way echoing exactly what Jesus himself taught as well. In fact, one of the things that you notice about Jesus when you open the Gospels to learn about him and discover what he was about was the fact that he was constantly serving people, whether it was people that no one else wanted to hang out with or whether it was the crowds who needed to be taught the ways of God and, and hear about the message of salvation, or whether it was spending extra time with his disciples who just sometimes didn't get it no matter what he was saying. Jesus was always serving others. This summer at Mercy Hill Church, we're in a series called Life Together. And we are looking together at a new way of being human. We're apprenticing with Jesus on his vision of what it means to be a different kind of human being, to take seriously the things he taught, to seek to follow his example. And as we're going throughout the summer, we're looking at what we're calling the Life Together Commands. Uh, throughout the New Testament, which are the documents that uh, both tell us about Jesus and apply the teachings of his life in a number of different ways, you find embedded in those documents a number of commands. And you see some of them up on the screen here. And a couple of weeks ago, we saw that the very first thing that happened uh, when Jesus had commissioned his message to be proclaimed among his people to the nations, that people began to believe in the message of Jesus, and then they formed these communities of faith. And these communities of faith we're devoted to one another. We actually saw this in our first week together, that we are designed to flourish as a part of a true community where we are devoted to one another. We saw that our default mode should be we instead of me. 
Now, one of the strengths of the Christian message is that Jesus has come to rescue us from our waywardness, from our sins, from our desire to live for ourselves and to bring us back in line with our design. And that's a beautiful thing. Every one of us needs to respond personally to the message of Jesus. But even though we want to say, in light of Jesus, that Christianity is about a personal relationship with God, it's not about a private relationship with God. The way that Jesus envisioned his followers being in this world was with one another and being a different kind of human being with one another and putting into practice what he desired for them. And so we saw um, last week that because of God's great love for us, that we ought to love one another as well. And this isn't something that we just do to add one more thing to our to-do list. I mean, you can sit there and say, who has time to be devoted to one another? Who has time to love one another? This isn't one more thing to add to the to-do list, but rather this ought to be something that is just the natural overflow of our lives. And so we want to take another step today as we think about what does it mean to serve one another, to be a person who has a servant's heart. And so we're going to be in the Gospel of John. Did I say the Gospel of Luke earlier? If I did, I apologize. Turn to the Gospel of John if you have a copy of the Scriptures. If not, we have them here on the screen behind me. Now, this is at the end of Jesus' three years of ministry. He has made this long march to Jerusalem, and he knows that he is going to be crucified there. He knows that the political machinery is in place, the opposition of the religious leaders is such that it's going to come to a point, but he nevertheless goes there. And during that week that he is there, it's the week of the Passover celebration. And we're told this in John chapter 13, verse 1. Now, before the feast of Passover... When Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart out of this world to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. This is the setup that John gives us here. Jesus is at the Feast of Passover, and this was, for the nation of Israel, a super special feast that commemorated a saving event in their history. It goes all the way back to the time when Moses led Israel out of slavery in Egypt. And they they journeyed through the wilderness and they ended up becoming their own sovereign nation. And so this Passover feast was a commemoration of that. And here Jesus is going to celebrate this with them. And we're told by John that Jesus had loved his, his disciples. But now he's going to love them to the very end. Now... This is where the the event of the the Last Supper takes place. And I want to borrow just a a few verses from the Gospel of Luke to give us a little bit of context of what Jesus is going to do next. It tells us in in the Gospel of Luke that when the hour came, he reclined at table and the apostles with him. And he said to them, I have earnestly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. Now, Jesus wanted to have this meal with them because it's important to their people but also because he's going to do something at this supper and redefining it around himself that will help them understand the great salvation that he has come to give to them and and to people like you and me. And so he he gives them what we call the last supper. He takes the bread of Passover and the wine of Passover and he gives it to them. But he also says to them in this moment, one of you is going to betray me. And the disciples start talking to one another. I bet that's you. It's not me. And it tells us here that a dispute also arose among them as to which of them was to be regarded as the greatest. 
This is almost comical. Here are these people who've spent three years with the most humble person who has ever walked this planet. And here they are in an argument about who it is that's going to betray Jesus. And they're all defending that it's not them because they themselves just happen to be the greatest in the room. (laughs) Who are they with? I mean, this is insane. Jesus said to them, let the greatest among you become as the youngest and the leader as one who serves. If you want to be great, great, you've got to actually become young in your heart. If you want to be a leader, you've got to be one who serves. And he asked this question, for who is greater, one who reclines at table or one who serves? Is it not the one who reclines at the table? But I am among you as one who serves. And scholars think it's at this point that Jesus gets up and does what he does next. Verse 2, it tells us in, back in the Gospel of John, chapter 13. During supper, when the devil had already put it into the heart of Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, to betray him, Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands and that he had come from God and was going back, rose from supper. He laid aside his outer garments and taking a towel, he tied it around his waist. Then he poured water into a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with a towel that was wrapped around him. Let's stop and think about this for a moment. Now, I know some of you who've been followers of Jesus for a long time know this story, but pretend like you don't. This is the first time that you're hearing it again. And maybe for some of us, it is the first time that we're hearing it. For someone to wash feet in that day was considered the absolute lowest job on the planet. Nobody wanted to do this. Now think about this. Back in that day, they didn't have cowboy boots and sneakers like we do. They, they wore sandals, or a lot of times they just went barefoot. And they walked on these dusty, dirty roads that were sometimes filled with um, uh, bad stuff, you know? <laughs> things that animals leave behind and all that. And, and it was just considered appropriate, a, a basic form of hospitality, that when a guest came to your house, a, a servant would wash their feet. And if there was a servant who was not Jewish, then they would assign that task to the non-Jewish servant. It was considered the lowest of the low. Never was there a case where someone who was a superior stooped to wash the feet of someone who was inferior. In fact, Andreas Kostenberger, a scholar who wrote a commentary on John, said this. The washing of feet of an inferior person by a superior is not attested elsewhere in Jewish or Greco-Roman sources. Let me translate that for us. No one in the world was doing what Jesus did right now. There's not a category for someone who is in a a superior place to, to stoop down and put themselves under an inferior. It didn't happen in the military. It didn't happen in politics. It didn't happen in religious circles. Nobody did this. And this is exactly what Jesus did. So it begins, oh, just by the way, remember Jesus said that one of you is going to betray me? Jesus stooped to wash the feet of Judas as well. So he's washing the feet of the disciples, and verse 6 tells us, he came to Simon Peter, who said to him, Lord, do you wash my feet? Jesus answered him, what I am doing you do not understand now, but afterward you will understand 
mean, Peter knows that Jesus shouldn't be doing this. This is, this is the last thing that he should be doing. So he, 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 Jesus comes and, and puts himself there in front of Peter. And he basically says, are you going to wash my feet, Lord? And Jesus says, you're not going to understand what I'm doing. But I'm going to do this, and, and then afterwards you will understand me. And Peter said to him, you shall never wash my feet. Jesus answered him, if I do not wash you, you have no share with me. I mean, for Peter, it was incomprehensible that his Lord and Savior, his master, his teacher, would wash his feet. So he says, you're not going to do that, Jesus, never. And Jesus says, look, unless I do this for you, you have no part in me. Elsewhere, Jesus said, whoever would be great among you must be your servant, and whoever would be first among you must be slave of all. For even, and here's his favorite self-term designation, for even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. I mean, here Jesus says, look, if you want to be great, you've got to become a slave of all. I mean, who thinks like this? That's not our natural impulse. I mean, even for those of us living in modern 21st century America, hear those words and we're like, what? I mean, who does that? But Jesus says, look, not even I came to be served, but the mission of my life is to serve others. And it would be quintessentially seen when I lay down my life and give it as a ransom for many. So Peter basically goes on and says, all right, Lord, Wash all of me, and Jesus says, you don't need to be completely washed, but I am going to wash your feet. Jump down to verse 12. When he had washed their feet and put on his outer garments and resumed his place, he said to them, do you understand what I have done to you? I mean, they witnessed Jesus doing this, but he asked them, do you understand? He told Peter, you're not going to understand what I'm doing, but afterwards you would. And so now he asked the question, do you understand what I've done to you? Jesus, their superior, considered them his superiors. And it's almost insane to put it like that. But Jesus humbled himself. These men who are arguing about who is the greatest, Jesus, the greatest, humbled himself taking the form of a servant and began to wash their feet. So he says, do you understand what I did? Verse 13, you call me teacher and Lord and you're right for so I am. If I then, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I have given you an example that you should do just as I have done to you. Jesus says, look, if I'm your superior, if I am your teacher and Lord, you're my disciples, you're my students, if I have washed your feet, then you also ought to wash one, another feet, one another's feet as well. I have given you this example that you should do for each other as I have done for you. So what is Jesus asking them to do? He's asking them to embody servanthood with one another. To not think about their own rights but to move into the place of a servant with one another. He says in verse 16, Truly, truly, I say to you, a servant is not greater than his master, nor is a messenger greater than the one who sent him. 
If you know these things, Jesus said, blessed are you if you do them. Jesus doesn't say, look, if you know these things, blessed are you because you know these things, right? What does he say? If you know these things, blessed are you if you do them. Who's given the blessing? God himself is. Because there's something fundamental about what it means to be human. That when we take the place of serving other people, we're actually becoming what God has designed us to be, which are servants to one another. And so if I can bottom line this for us, it would look like this. True greatness comes from humbling ourselves to serve one another. True greatness does not come from elevating ourselves above others, trying to get them to serve us. But true greatness comes when we humble ourselves below others in order to serve them. Do you believe that? Do you believe that? A couple points of application for us as we wrap this up. First of all, if we get what Jesus is saying, if we believe what he is saying, then I think an appropriate piece of application to this would be for each and every one of us to ruthlessly slay pride wherever we find it in our life. Not just slay it, but go crazy on it. To ruthlessly put it to death. Because my friends, you see, this wasn't the first time that Jesus had to talk to his disciples about this. There were multiple times when they were arguing about who was going to be the greatest, when who would have positions of greatness in the kingdom of Jesus. For example, in the Gospel of Mark, we're told uh, they, they came to Capernaum, which is Jesus' home base, and they were finishing up a journey. And when he, that is Jesus, came into the house, he asked them, what were you discussing on the way? <laughs> but they kept silent. For on the way, they had argued with one another about who was the greatest. So they're arguing about it during the ministry of Jesus, and, and at the end of Jesus' ministry, at that last supper, they're still arguing about it. And he said to them there, if anyone would be first, he must be last of all and a servant of all. They're not getting it. If these 12 disciples who spent three years with Jesus, the most humble person in the world, learning from him, seeing humility on display, and yet they're still filled with pride, how much more so is that the case with us? C.J. Mahaney in an excellent book, called humility, true greatness, said, the real issue here is not if pride exists in your heart, it's where pride exists and how pride is being expressed in your life. He says the real issue is not if you have pride in your life. That's a given. The real issue is where is it manifesting itself? How is it coming out? That's the real issue. What if we, what if, come here for a second, lean in. What if I said, all right, right now, we're going to actually put into practice what Jesus just told us to do here. We're going to wash each other's feet. So I want everyone to take their shoes off. We got bowls in the back. Go grab some. We're going to wash each other's feet. <laughs> I would, yeah, Grace has clean feet. That's not a problem. What would your reaction be? I, I bet some of us would kind of get up and just kind of sneak our way out the door because we're not going to do that, right? We don't do that in our culture. We don't want to touch each other's feet. 
Maybe some of us would, would re- do it reluctantly because they don't want the pastor to be mad at them or something like that. But in their hearts, they would be like, ah, this is dumb. This is stupid. I just, I'm not coming back here ever again. But if Jesus, the greatest human being who ever existed, the example par excellence of humility could wash the dirty, stinking feet of his disciples, then why couldn't we do that with one another? The late Anglican minister John Stott said, At every stage of Christian development and in every sphere of our Christian discipleship, pride is the greatest enemy and humility is our greatest friend. It doesn't matter if you're just beginning to start life with Christ or you've been walking with Jesus for 50 years. At every stage and in every single day of your life, pride is your greatest enemy and humility your greatest friend. The book of Proverbs has this section where Lady Wisdom is talking about the way God has designed this world to function. And and out of the mouth of Lady Wisdom come these words, I hate pride and arrogance. My friends, can you say the same thing? I'm not asking if you hate pride and arrogance in other people. I'm assuming you do. I'm asking if you hate pride and arrogance in your life. And here's the way that you can maybe uh, tell if that's the case. Do you ever pray about that? Do you ever say to God, God, I hate how arrogant and prideful I am. Please change me. I want you, God, to, like a heat-seeking missile, come find pride in my life and destroy it. Most of us are like, "Ah, I don't want to give God that kind of permission (laughs) in my life. Let me just say this. If if we're too prideful to, you know, quote, unquote, give God permission to do that, then guess what becomes a big uh, target right over our lives that God needs to deal with? So my friends, ruthlessly slay pride wherever you find it. Second point of application is this. Follow in the footsteps of the greatest servant of all. The Apostle Paul, who was a very arrogant and prideful religious man, who was, who was on his way to, to put Christians in prison and, and to execute them, became a Christian when he met the resurrected Jesus. And, and later he was in prison because of his, his testimony about Jesus. And from prison he was writing to, to some groups uh, of Christians living in the city called Philippi. And this is what he said. He said, do nothing out of rivalry or conceit, whatever might be your temptation to go, I'm the greatest, you know, do nothing out of that. But in humility, count others more significant than yourselves. Now, I don't know about you, but I don't get out of bed every day going, huh, how can I just count everybody else more significant than me? The Greek word for that means to be exceptionally valuable. To count other people as as more exceptionally valuable than yourself. He goes on and says, have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. He's like, all right, this is, this is the mindset I want you to adopt, he says. Who through, I'm sorry, are, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. Here he says, okay, Jesus himself, literally the greatest. He, he was the perfect God man. 
It was God coming to us in human form. He did not have to grasp after being with God. He was. He made himself nothing. Do you get that? Hear what Paul is saying. Some of you, I know this is familiar, so you can like finish this quotation. But listen to what he's saying. Jesus made himself nothing. The greatest person made himself nothing for people like you and me. Jesus made himself nothing, taking the form of a servant. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. And so this is what Paul is saying. He's like, you need to have this kind of mindset. If you're, if you're gonna follow Jesus on his journey toward humility and his journey in serving other people, you gotta have this kind of mindset. I am a servant of the servants. I wanna take the lowest position I can so that I can serve as many people as I can. No one thinks naturally about this. All the self-help books tell you about how you can become great and beat your chest and impress other people. Paul says, look, what you need to do is, is you need to follow in the footsteps of Jesus and become literally nothing. Cyprian, one of the church fathers, wrote these words. He said, if the servant, that's you and me, if the servant is not greater than his Lord, let those who follow the Lord humble themselves and peacefully and silently tread in his steps. Since the lower one is, the more exalted he may become. As the Lord says, he that is least among you shall be the greatest. <laughs> Cyprian here knows, and he's teaching other people to follow Jesus, that, that when you lower yourself, there's actually this paradox that takes place. God himself notices, and he promises to lift you up, to exalt you. The Apostle Peter, at one point, we're going to actually look at this as the last uh, message in our series, but I'm going to just give you a preview of it here. Peter, the Apostle, said, clothe yourselves, all of you. This is Peter, the one who, who let Jesus wash his feet. Clothe yourselves, all of you, with humility toward one another, for God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God so that at the proper time he may exalt you. This is Peter, one of the close disciples of Jesus, one of Jesus' best friends. He says, look, God opposes the proud. And to the degree that there's pride existing in our life and expressing itself, God is going to oppose us in that. But he says, humble yourself so that at the proper time God may exalt you. God wants to exalt you. He wants to recognize your greatness, but it goes through the path of humility first. And here's the last point of application. If we're going to ruthlessly slay pride in our life, and we're going to follow in the footsteps of Jesus, then we need to intentionally take the place of a servant. We need to adopt that mindset. Peter, again, in that same letter, writes, as each of you has received a gift, use it to serve one another as good servants of God's very grace. In other words, you have been given gifts that are meant to be used to serve other people. And, and, and in doing so, you're stewarding God's grace. You're putting to good use the gifts that God himself has given you. Now, now some of you have gifts that are different than mine, and you're called to use them 
to serve others. And I have gifts that are different than yours, maybe. And I'm called to use them as I can. And, and Peter goes on here and says, whoever serves as one who serves by the strength that God supplies, in order that in everything God may be glorified through Jesus Christ to him, belong glory and dominion forever and ever. Here's the motivation. God, I want you to be glorified in my life. I'm so thankful for, for the fact that Jesus humbled himself for me, that I want to take the place of a servant so that I can serve other people. And I can serve people in this room so that God himself gets the glory. And so we want to find ourselves saying things like this. How can I help? What can I do to be a blessing to others today? How can we do such things that you know, people are frequently saying thank you and we just respond with, you know, it's my pleasure. I'm, I'm, I'm glad to do it. It brings me joy. So my friends, if, if Jesus said, I am among you as one who serves, what's the implication for us? How are we to be among each other and among this world? Are we not also to be among those or to be, to be among others as ones who serve? Uh, last illustration here. My wife and I were at uh, the food pantry, the, the Bridges Food Pantry this last week, and I was in the kitchen where the air conditioning is and uh, helping people in that. And my wife got the, the duty of um, pushing the carts and helping people uh, bag their, their items and to take them out to the car. So while she was out there, uh, there was a 13-year-old girl who's pushing a cart in front of Heather. And while they were waiting for the cars to be driven up so they could put the groceries in, this 13-year-old girl turned to Heather and just said this, this is my favorite place to be in the world. This girl found so much joy in being among people in poverty in our city, serving them. That it, she didn't, the thought came to her, this is my favorite place in the world. And it, and it bubbled up and she had to tell someone. So she turned to Heather that she just met that night and just said, this is my favorite place to be in the world. My friends, that young 13-year-old was understanding something fundamental about what it means to be human and what Jesus wants to work in each one of us. And that is a servant's heart. In fact, you and I become fulfilled, not in demanding our rights, but by laying them down and, and becoming a servant of all and following in the footsteps of Jesus. So my friends, imagine what if we really believe that the secret to true greatness is found in serving one another? What if the, the call to serve one another was not just one more item to do on our to-do list, but an overflow of who we are? What if, like Jesus, it just sparked joy in us, not to be served, but to serve others? What if every place became our favorite place because those are places where we can actually put into practice following Jesus in a new way of being human, following in his footsteps by serving other people. My friends, if we took steps in that direction, I believe that we would experience at levels that maybe we've never experienced before the smile of Jesus over our life as he watches us and as he is at work in us, becoming more like him. My friends, you wanna know how to define true greatness? You look at Jesus who loved us and humbled himself to give himself for us and rose again from the dead. That you and I 
may have new life and follow him in becoming a servant of all.